Brothers and sisters, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue ahead in the book of Luke. Chapter 23, we are beginning as I read from verse 32 to verse 56. The title of today's message is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You can see there verse 46 is underlined in your sermon notes. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. Psalm of David in Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5, we hear some familiar words. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And so we see the Lord Jesus Christ using the words of Scripture and teaching us what happened to him there as he was dying. Teaching us to use Scripture in all of our moments even our dying moment, especially our dying moment. So as I said, the title of today's sermon is Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We'll look at the words that Jesus spoke on the cross, the three verses that were given from Luke. So what Luke records is Jesus speaking on the cross. And we'll look at the events that occurred while Jesus was on the cross from Luke and from the other Gospels, not just the synoptics. And we'll see that Jesus entrusts his spirit to his father and dies. 
How do the witnesses respond? We'll see that in verses 47 through 49. And then as usual, some questions for us to consider to grow in our love for God and our obedience to the Lord. So, Christ's words on the cross in Luke. Luke records for us three sayings of Christ while he is on the cross. First, verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So here we see Jesus begins his cross time with his Father, praying to his Father. We see Jesus remaining compassionate towards his tormentors, even interceding for his tormentors. Next, in verse 43, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is sure that he will very shortly be delivered from this by his Father. You see that? He's not just giving a promise to this man. He's also speaking of his own future with certainty. But Jesus also promises redemption to this believing thief, bringing the thief into the Father's redemption. I happened to notice as I was reviewing the other Gospels that both the thieves had reviled Jesus at some point on the cross. So one of the thieves went through repentance. The believing thief went through repentance there on the cross. And with this phrase, with this word paradise, Jesus points us all back to Eden. Remember the cherubim woven in artistic design there on the temple veil. And with it being torn in two, it not only demonstrates the elimination, the destruction of the old covenant way of restoration through bulls and lambs and all that shedding of blood, but also shows us the way back into the garden, back into Eden, into closeness and fellowship with God and restored understanding and ability to carry out the creation mandate, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue the creatures and have dominion over this world, making it look like a garden everywhere, learning to work together with one another as Christians. Jesus points us all back to Eden with these words, and the tearing of the temple does the same thing. The temple veil. And then verse 46, what we'll look at today, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We see that Jesus ends his cross time with his Father. We will see from other reports, other words that Jesus spoke on the cross. Now, what were the events while Jesus was on the cross and then leading up to his death? What are the things that, are, that occurred? This is from Luke and from the other Gospels. And I have them in today's sermon notes in what is generally considered a, a reasonable chronology, but we can't be dogmatic about this. Jesus crucified between two criminals. That's where it starts. He's hanging between two criminals. He asks his father to forgive his tormentors. The soldiers divide his garments. Jesus is then mocked by the people, by the rulers, by the soldiers, indirectly by Pilate with a sign that's over his head. And he's also mocked by the hard-hearted, unrepentant thief. Then we see the repentant thief defends and praises Jesus and asks Jesus for redemption. Jesus then promises to redeem the repentant thief. And then we're told of three hours of darkness and the darkened sun. And as we discussed last week, it's most likely this is a supernatural darkness that God poured over this area at that time. Because then it says, and the sun was darkened, something different. Like what happened in Egypt, the supernatural darkness that God put over the enemies of his people during the plagues. A beautiful thing is given to us by John in his gospel. Jesus gives responsibility for his mother to John there while he's on the cross toward the end of his life. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her 
to his own home. Isn't that beautiful? Next we see Jesus crying out to God in anguish around the time of his death. This is mentioned in Matthew and Mark, and we also see it in Luke. We'll look at that when we get to verse 46, the cry. The loud cry is likely the same moment. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a quote from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, you see Jesus is using this psalm to help us understand what he's experiencing. This psalm written hundreds of years before. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So Jesus is calling out to God. Why have you forsaken me? And then next we see the temple veil is torn. A mighty earthquake where rocks split, where graves are opened, and where there are many resurrected saints who are seen walking around in the city of Jerusalem after Jesus comes back from the dead. This is from Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. As you can see, the authors of the Gospels are reporting to us, of course, what's happening there on the cross with the people that are there. But also we hear of things happening in Jerusalem and even beyond with the earthquake and with the darkness and with the resurrection. So Jesus entrusts his spirit to his father and he dies in verse 46 today. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. This loud cry, if not the same moment as reported in the other gospels, certainly brings to mind this loud cry that he let out when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, here we are as we're going through the study of the book of Luke, and we've come to this moment. This is the deepest depth of Christ's suffering upon the cross. He does not call God his father in this text. He declares he has been forsaken by his God and he asks why. Such a doleful cry has never left other human lips. No soul has ever plunged so deep into darkness. Matthew Henry says, Surely never sorrow was like unto that sorrow which extorted such a complaint as this from one who being perfectly free from sin could never be a terror to himself, but the heart knows its own bitterness. No wonder that such a complaint as this made the earth to quake and rent the rocks, for it is enough to make both the ears of everyone that hears it to tingle and ought to be spoken of with great reverence. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was forsaken by his Father so that we will never be forsaken by God. Never. No matter how you may feel. And there are times when we go through feeling forsaken. 
It may feel that way. But brothers and sisters, we are never forsaken. Because Jesus was forsaken. Matthew Henry says, when his soul was first troubled, he had a voice from heaven to comfort him. This is in John 12. When he was in his agony in the garden, there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. But now he had neither the one nor the other. God hid his face from him and for a while withdrew his rod and staff in that darksome valley. This is our Jesus. He let out upon his soul an afflicting sense of his wrath against man for sin. Christ was made sin for us, a curse for us. And therefore, though God loved him as a son, he frowned upon him as a surety. Brothers and sisters, this cannot be some cold doctrine that you intellectually assent to. This is meant to grip your soul and crush your heart with love and gratitude for your Savior. May that be so today for you. May it not just be some hollow doctrine. May you see Jesus, your Savior, suffering like He did for you. Demonstrating to you His love for you and for His Father as the perfect man. Brothers and sisters, whenever you are feeling forsaken of God, call to mind this moment of your Savior upon the cross. Hear His loud cry to God. Remember His bitter depths, unsearchable, the waves of God's frowning and turned back and fierce wrath upon Him. Jesus, the only truly forsaken one under God's wrath at that time. And praise Christ, your surety, who lives and intercedes for you forever and ever brings you safely before God, past the cherubim with their flaming swords, beloved there in the blazing countenance and the smile of the Father of God before whom we are now. As we said earlier, did we not? We lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. This is why we say it with gusto. Because we are there in Him. Because of what He did. Remember His cross cry. As you cry out under your cross. Because you've got a cross too, don't you? You do. And part of that will be that you will feel forsaken. That's part of taking up your cross. But you are not. Because he was. Matthew Henry says that Christ's being forsaken of his father was the most grievous of his sufferings and that which he complained most of. Here he had laid the most doleful accents. He did not say, Why am I scourged? And why spit upon? And why nailed to the cross? Nor did he say to his disciples when they turned their back upon him, Why have ye forsaken me? But when his father stood at a distance, he cried out thus. For this, as it that put wormwood and gall into the affliction and misery, this brought the waters into the soul. None of us will ever taste this. This Jesus endured for us. And we have to see this in light of the bliss and the joy of perfect communion that Jesus Christ had experienced every moment of his incarnation with his Father. And he's alone there on the cross, brothers and sisters. Please let this be blazoned into your souls as you... Go forward from this day carrying your cross that Christ gives to you. You will never be forsaken because he was forsaken. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is important for us to consider. Jesus ends his cross time with his Father. So we've just walked through the deepest valley that any human soul has ever experienced. 
<clears throat> he did not call him God. Excuse me, Father. He called him God. But now he's back. Jesus ends his cross time with his Father like he began it. As if the vast, dark storm of lonely anguish could not keep out the bright, mighty beam of his Father's love. God even though presently forsaking Jesus, can be trusted as Father. So while Christ is drowning in the deluge of the curse, he comes forth. His faith persists. Trusting his Father will guard his beloved Son's life. He never loses faith. He was forsaken and did not lose faith. Let this strengthen our faith, brothers and sisters, we who are never forsaken, to see the Father's love as that blazing beam, that ray of grace through every storm. Dear saints, will you look to Jesus in his hour of suffering and remember his faith whenever you face your little storm clouds? It doesn't matter really what any human being has ever faced because even the worst human suffering is just a summer afternoon thundercloud compared to the category six, seven million infinite hurricane of wrath that Jesus experienced on the cross. Will you look to Jesus in his hour of suffering and remember his faith whenever you face your little storm clouds? It's perspective, right? Doesn't this, don't we need the cross perspective in our lives? What have we ever faced in comparison to him? Does it make you feel ashamed for any grumbling and complaining you've ever done? It does me. Brothers and sisters, let your faith soar to heaven and grow up into the faith like Jesus Christ. Kathy Henry says, in this address to God, he calls him Father. When he complained of being forsaken, he cried, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. But to show that dreadful agony of his soul was now over, he here calls God Father. When he was giving up his life and soul for us, he did for us call God Father, that we through him might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus is both the great high priest and the Lamb of God, volunteering, voluntarily offering himself up to God. And so that's an important point that is made here in the words that Jesus speaks when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus offers himself up to God. Matthew Henry said, Christ made use of these words in a sense peculiar to himself as mediator. He was now to make his soul an offering for our sin, to give his life a ransom for many, by the eternal spirit to offer himself. He was himself both the priest and the sacrifice. Our souls were forfeited and his must go to redeem the forfeiture. The price must be paid into the hands of God, the party offended by sin. To him he had undertaken to make full satisfaction. Now by these words he offered up the sacrifice, did as it were lay his hand upon the head of it and surrender it. I deposit it, I pay it down into thy hands. Father, accept my life and soul instead of the lives and souls of the sinners I die for. The good will of the offerer was a prerequisite to the acceptance of the offering. Now Christ here expresses his cheerful willingness to offer himself as he had done when it was first proposed to him. Lo, I come to do thy will. <clears throat> We've looked at Hebrews from chapter 9, we see verses 11 through 14, the author of Hebrews, whom, as you know, I think is Luke, probably, says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, <clears throat> with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit, spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, the great high priest, offering himself up as the Lamb of God. Will you live and die with this kind of faith in your Father's loving kindness towards you? Will you, will you live that way? Will you die that way? Matthew Henry says, Christ has hereby left us an example, has fitted these words of David to the purpose of dying saints, and hath, as it were, sanctified them for their use. In death our great care should be about our souls, and we cannot more effectually provide for their welfare than by committing them now into the hands of God. As a father, to be sanctified and governed by his spirit and grace, and at death committing them into his hands to be made perfect in holiness and happiness. We must show that we are freely willing to die, that we firmly believe in another life after this, and are desirous of it by saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This is a prayer for every morning, a prayer for every evening, a prayer for every moment, a prayer for every dying breath. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How do the witnesses respond to this? How are you responding to this today? Verses 47 through 49. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So first we have a Gentile Roman centurion, man of power. He's been promoted in rank. He has respect. So surely, at the very least, he's been a willing observer of Christ's beatings and mockings and crucifixion. But now, he's seen things. He's experienced things. He's heard things that have made him go from a crucifier to a glorifier. From the crucifier of God to the glorifier of God. Did he become a Christian? I don't think we know from Scripture. But this is a significant transition. Matthew Henry says, he was a Roman, a Gentile, a stranger to the consolations of Israel, and yet he glorified God. He never saw such amazing instances of divine power and therefore took occasion thence to adore God as the Almighty. And he bore testimony to the patient sufferer Certainly this was a righteous man and was unjustly put to death. God's manifesting his power so much to do him honor was a plain evidence of his innocency. His testimony in Matthew and Mark goes further. The centurion there is recorded as saying, truly this was the son of God. But in his case this amounts to the same. For if he was a righteous man, he said very truly when he said that he was the son. He said that very truly when he said that he was the son of God. So maybe this is a, a Gentile coming to Christ here, having observed all of these things. What about the mocking crowd? What do they do? Well, it appears as though they're now mourning. Their experience at the cross has changed them somehow. Probably not permanently, but there's at least a temporary impact on them from being here and experiencing these astonishing events. Christ in his tenderness and his compassion towards his tormentors. The darkness poured out, the supernatural darkness, the sun being darkened, the words he spoke, the forgiveness that he expressed, the shaking of the earth, the rocks being split. They were there. They had cried, crucify him, crucify him. They had walked along, they had come to the cross. It appears as though they were sneering at him and the leader's of the Jews, took the lead in the sneering, but now they've been changed somehow. Matthew Henry says, they smote their breasts and returned. They laid the thing very much to heart for the present. They looked upon it as a wicked thing to put him to death. 
and could not but think that some judgment of God would come upon their nation for it. Probably these very people were of those that had cried, Crucify Him, crucify Him. And when He was nailed to the cross, reviled and blasphemed Him. But now they were so terrified with the darkness and the earthquake and the uncommon manner of His expiring that they had not only their mouths stopped, but their consciences startled and in remorse for what they had done as the publican they smote upon their breasts, beat upon their own hearts as though that had indignation at themselves. Some think that this was a happy step towards that good work which was afterwards wrought upon them when they were pricked to the heart in Acts chapter 2, which we will see. Perhaps some of these had been made ready for repentance in Acts chapter 2 through this that they, that they observed. But, however, note, they beat their breasts and returned. A moment's deep regret and chest pounding is not the same thing as real faith. Matthew Henry says they did not show any further token of respect to Christ nor inquire more concerning, in, concerning Him, but went home. And we have reason to fear that in a little time they quite forgot it. Now listen, saints. Thus many that see Christ evidently set forth crucified among them in the Word and the sacraments are a little affected for the present, but it does not continue. They don't really change. They smite their breasts and return. They see Christ's face in the glass of the ordinances and admire Him, but they go away and straightway forget what manner of man He is and what reason they have to love Him. What's your spiritual memory like, brothers and sisters? What is your memory like when it comes to Christ crucified in your life? What place in your thinking, in your living, in your daily planning, in your life, does Christ crucified play for you? So not only the centurion, not just the people, but there's word here about his acquaintances and these women but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. You see the difference? You see the contrast between the centurion, the crowd, and these disciples of Jesus? The centurion gives a definitive statement about Christ. The crowd displays a definitive attitude of mourning. Christ's followers are described as watching. There's no definitive response described. You see, they're still waiting for something. Some part of them is looking for more from Jesus. It's as if they've seen enough to know that Jesus will get the last word. They're still expectant. This can't be the final event. There's some part of them that knows that. Are they filled with faith in that regard? I'm not saying that. But they're not like the others. The others have settled on his death. He's done. Jesus is done. He's all done. There's enough of who he is in their mind and hearts to still be watching. You don't watch after somebody's dead. Note also, and this is important as we go through Luke and Acts. This is really important. Note how Luke honors the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee. They're away from their homes. They stand with Jesus to the end. And there's not one bit of evidence that they ever scattered or ran away like the men who, whom he called to be his disciples. Only John is mentioned by any of the gospel writers as having been present at Christ's crucifixion. About this, Calvin says, I consider this to have been added in order to inform us that while the disciples had fled and were scattered in every direction, still some of their company were retained by the Lord as witnesses. Now, though the apostle John did not depart from the cross, yet no mention is made of him, but praise is bestowed on the women alone who accompanied Christ till death, 
because their extraordinary attachment to their master was the more strikingly displayed when the men fled trembling. And I want you to let that phrase really grip your soul. Put it on a three-by-five card somewhere in your house. Their extraordinary attachment to their master. Could someone describe you that way? As having an extraordinary attachment to Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Master. For they must have been, going on with Calvin, for they must have been endued with extraordinary strength of attachment since though they could render Him no service, they did not cease to treat Him with reverence even when exposed to the lowest disgrace. Extraordinary strength of attachment. That's a a phrase worth asking God to accomplish in you towards Jesus Christ. Extraordinary sense of attachment. Going on with Calvin. And yet we learn from Luke that all the men had not fled. For he says that all his acquaintances stood at a distance. But not without reason do the evangelists bestow the chief praise on the women. For they deserve the preference above the men. In my opinion... The implied contrast suggests a severe reproof of the apostles. I speak of the great body of them. For since only one remained, the three evangelists, as I mentioned a little ago, when he says evangelists, he's talking about the synoptic gospels. These synoptics take no notice of John, even. It was in the highest degree disgraceful to chosen witnesses to withdraw from that spectacle on which depended the salvation of the world. These, brothers and sisters, ponder it. These were the chosen witnesses that Jesus Christ chose out to bear witness to all of His life. And they appear to have been absent at His crucifixion. Do we know that for sure? We we, We can't say that for sure, but there's no mention of them. Accordingly, when they afterwards proclaimed the gospel, they must have borrowed from women the chief portion of the history. But if a remedy had not been miraculously prepared by providence against a great evil, they would have deprived themselves and us along with them of the knowledge of redemption. I mean, if you think about it, you are hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the description of His work on the cross, in a similar way that the apostles heard it, most likely, from somebody else. It appears as though they didn't see it. Now, do you think you would have run away too? Be careful, right? But what about today? What about now? What about the work that God has been doing in your life and is doing in your life now? Would you run away Or would you be standing there? These are important questions for us to consider. And the big question for all of us is, what is your response to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the most important question any person will ever face. What is your response to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's not a question you answer once. It is a question you answer every day, every moment of your life. How are you responding to the Lord Jesus Christ, to His cross work in your life today? You know, our church went through, I think, an important time of repentance that's worth emphasizing with times like this, sermons like this. It is easy to get distracted by doctrine and care more about doctrine than we do about God. To love doctrine more than we love God. To have a stronger strength of attachment to doctrinal descriptions than to God Himself. There's a lot of bad doctrine. We are called to sound doctrine Sound doctrine is given to us, though, for the single purpose of being able to live and not die in the presence of the holy God of the universe. That's it. 
to be brought back into his presence and to know him and to love him and have your life spent for him. So I hope that today the cross isn't just some piece of doctrine for you, but that you, by God's grace, through his spirit, have had a, a fuller view of Jesus Christ on the cross today for you. And may that be true every day of our lives. You can listen to an endless string of sermons and never plumb the depths of what our Savior went through on the cross. What he experienced when he was forsaken by God. But let's keep plumbing those depths. Amen? Because the deeper we go into his humiliation, we also find the heights of his exaltation will also grow before our eyes. Because in the same way that he was made the lowest, he has been made the highest. And he is risen. And he is ascended. And it appears as though his wounds are still visible. He wants us to know him by his cross. He is the king with scars. So I'm going to read Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21 to to remind us of really the scripture that God gave to us as a church when we went through that repentance. Because, you know, do you want to just sit around and talk about glasses all day long? You've heard me give this analogy. Or do you just want to put them on and see one another and enjoy each other's presence? See, glasses... Our good glasses are like sound doctrine. They're given to us to see God, to know God. Do you want to have a strong attachment to your glasses or to your spouse whom you see through your glasses? Do you see? So we believe that the roots of our church are found in this kind of sin. The roots of our church are found in this kind of sin, brothers and sisters. And may God root every bit of it out of our church. And this sin is the pride of loving doctrine more than God. So, this is Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So what does Paul want for them? (laughs) That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. To what purpose? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why are we here? Brothers and sisters, we are here to, here to be filled with all the fullness of God. Why do you walk each day? Why do you still have life? To be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this probably seems to some of us like well, that's other Christians. You know, that's like Jim Elliot Christians. Or, or you know, you pick, pick your famous Christian that you adore. No. It is for you, sitting in this pew, here on August 22nd, 2021, and for those of you listening, in the future, it is for you. When you trust in Christ and look to Him, and His cross work comes to you as the central defining feature of your existence, And knowing him becomes everything. You too can have this happen. Not just for the folks in Ephesus. You can be filled with all the fullness of God. Because this seems like it can't be done. And I think that's why Paul ends this prayer with this doxology. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. He knows that you hear this and you think, well, that's, that's a bit much. No, it is a bit much. It's way more than a bit much. But he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, 
beyond, above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So do you know the love of Christ most fully displayed to you upon his cross? Do you know this love? Do you understand that when Jesus went through this, he's displaying love for you, love for his church, love for his father. Do you know this love as your own? Next, do you see the connection between knowing Christ's love and being filled with all the fullness of God? This is a spiritual work. Verse 16, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Are you dry? Does your soul lack that strength of attachment to Jesus that you heard described? What is the solution, brothers and sisters? We must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. So Christ's love comes to us by His Spirit. We are strengthened by His Spirit to hear His words, description of His love, to believe it for ourselves, to believe it for His people. And in this comes being filled with the fullness of God. And we are transformed. We change. And you come to love Him. You come to find Him as your heart's treasure. This is what we desire, is it not? So ask yourself this question. What would happen to me... If I were to be filled with all the fullness of God more and more every day. What would your, how would that impact your life? How would things change in your life? How would this impact your sanctification? We can be resistant to the word of God. We can be resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit of God in our, in our lives. We can be resistant to the discipling influences that God places around us that are meant to help shape us and grow us into Christ's likeness. We can become resistant to the idea of change. Jesus is sanctifying us. Are you on board? So, How will being filled with all the fullness of God impact your sanctification, your view of sanctification, your cooperation with God's work in your life, your humility to be changed, your courage to hear the truth about yourself, your wisdom, your ability to discern about your relationships. How will being filled with all the fullness of God, seeing Christ on the cross in the way that we discussed today, how will this impact your relationships? Your humility in relationships. How will this impact your works of ministry? We're all called to works of ministry, right? The church is here to equip the saints to do the works of ministry. You know, each of you in your family and in your individual life, you're called to works of ministry. Do you want to try your works of ministry not being filled up with all the fullness of God? How about your marriage? Where are things stuck in your marriage? How do you think your marriage will be impacted if you and your spouse are filled up with all the fullness of God? Can you begin to dream God's vision for your marriage? How about your family? How about the hard spots in your family? You see, brothers and sisters, this is not just doctrine meant to cause our hearts to soar and build our faith. Amen. It is also doctrine, truth of God and who He is that brings us into real meaningful transformation in our lives. 
I need to be changed. You need to be changed. All of us, as one of our greatest life goals, should embrace the change that Jesus Christ intends to work into us day by day. This should impact my relationships, your relationships, our works of ministry, our marriage, our family. How about your calling? Young men, seeking to discern God's calling in your life. Do you want to try to understand God's calling upon your life without being filled with all the fullness of God? Or do you want to pursue His calling with a heart aflame with gratitude and love towards Him? Filled with all the fullness of God. How about when you die? When you die and you breathe your last breath, how will being filled with all the fullness of God impact you? How will seeing Christ on the cross, suffering forsaken, His love for you, how will that impact you at the moment of your death? Will it be a moment of joy and a departure into bliss? Or will you be terrified and afraid? Will the fear be washed away as you contemplate Jesus Christ was forsaken and you will never be forsaken? And that the moment that you commit your spirit into his hands, you are present with Jesus as your soul departs your body. We Christians have this hope, brothers and sisters. We Christians have the greatest hope. Jesus was forsaken. We will not be. Jesus was raised from the dead and we will be. He ascended to the Father's right hand and we will be taken to Him. And in the final day, we're going to be given a glorified body like His. Meanwhile, can we be filled up with all the fullness of God? Rejoicing in the cross as we've looked at today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we join with the Apostle Paul and we do together before your throne. Lord, we bow our knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledging, Lord, that from you, Father, comes the whole family in heaven and earth and it's named for you. And we ask you, Father that you would grant, according to the riches of your glory, that we here at Foothills would be strengthened with might by your Holy Spirit in our inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would be made able to comprehend with all the saints together what is this vastness, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness, Lord God, of your very self. Now to you who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to this mighty, almighty power that works in us, to you, O God, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever.